Oh, Lord, how awesome it was to sing corporately, worship you in song. And I pray, God, that if nothing else, it oriented our mind, focused us on you, sing of your glory, your greatness, your faithfulness, all of your, all of your attributes, God, that are worthy of praise. May it help us now, Lord, as we come to your word. May we come expectant to learn what it is that you would have for us. And as we've, Lord, been going through this wonderful epistle of Titus, Lord, may it continue to serve for us a reminder of your glorious design for your church. And so I ask, God, that you help us, help our minds, to comprehend, to focus, God, to give us ears to hear and eyes to see in Christ's name. Amen. Former CIA agent Lindsay Morin wrote a book called Blowing My Cover, My Life as a CIA Spy. And so she offered some insight on how to tell if someone is a spy. Very interesting. So she runs through some very basic yes-no questions that based off the answer, you may actually be able to tell if someone is a spy. First question, are they on Facebook, social media? Are they the most entertaining person at the party? Have they told you they're a spy? Are they the head of the local neighborhood association? Are they the coach of your kid's soccer team or baseball team? Are their vacations typical, as in Disneyland, every year at the same time? Interesting enough, though, of all of the answers to these questions, or if any of the answers to these questions are a yes, then the conclusion is they're probably not a spy. But the very last question is the most telling, if someone is a spy, and the question is this, do you know a lot about them? What this implies is, have you seen through time how they live their life? Do you know their character? Do you know what motivates them? And hopefully, I didn't make anyone here paranoid <laughs> and start thinking, hmm, so-and-so I think is a spy. But this morning, as we've progressively been working our way through, the book of Titus brings us to our next set of verses. In Titus chapter 1, please turn there. Verses 10 through 16. And this passage has a very specific encouragement to the church, specifically to the elders of which we covered last week, verses 5 through 9. But by implication, those of the entire local church, and that's this to recognize false teachers in the church. To recognize false teachers in the church. Last week we covered the qualifications and how to recognize elders within the church. This morning we will go over how to recognize false teachers within the church and what to do with them once we recognize them. So to refresh your memory briefly on the book of Titus, this is God's glorious design for his church, God's handbook for the church, if you will. In it, we're told of the glorious truth that a sound church is a church sound in its doctrine. A sound and a healthy church that is faithful to sound doctrine is a church with healthy members that are growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. You know, the church is so precious to Christ that he protects it. And Titus has been left on the island of Crete in order to set in order, or in other words, put in order what remains. And Titus's priority is to get these churches healthy again, calibrate their focus in the truth of God's word. It is through the truth, through sound doctrine that will lead, yes, into salvation as, as the church is faithful to proclaim the gospel. But then it will also lead into sanctification and growth. For the believer, and then it will lead for the believer glorification, this eternal hope, this eternal hope 
of being with Christ. This, this eternal hope of, of no more sin, of abundant life, is yours for the believer. It is through the church that manifests the manifold wisdom of God. And if the church is so important, you better believe God will protect it. Will come to its defense. It's the one enterprise he's building. I will build my church, Christ says, and nothing's going to stop me. Oh, one day all will be made right. But in the meantime, the Lord has designed it for his church to appoint elders for its health and sound doctrine and protection from wolves. In verse 9, just by way of context, in chapter 1, elders are those who are holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So my goal this morning is simple. As the local church... We need to know what to look for regarding false teachers. And we need to know what to do with them. We need to know what to look for, and we need to know what to do with them. So when these spies come in within our midst and attempt to make the church anything but sound, may we be faithful to Christ and His church and manifest the truth of His Word. So our text again, starting in verse 10 through the remainder of verse or through the remainder of chapter 1 going to verse 16 follow along as i read that for there are many rebellious men empty talkers and deceivers especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain one of themselves a prophet of their own said cretans are always liars evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And so regarding false teachers, this text will inform us, first, who they are. Who they are. Second, what they teach. Third, what they do. Fourth, how they live. And fifth, our final point relates to us, the local church. And that is, what are we to do? Who they are, what they teach, what they do, how they live, and what are we to do? So first, who are these false teachers? This passage gives us a number of descriptions that we need to be aware of so that we know what to look for. Again, for context, Paul here is addressing False teaching that is from within, okay? within the church, within the church's midst. You see how dangerous this is? It's like a, like a spy who infiltrates only to cause havoc. You know, it's easier to see a false teacher coming in from the outside because you can spot it. You can spot it before it gets close. The greatest danger, dear church, to Christ's church is the danger from within. So starting again in verse 10, it says, for there are many. We'll pause there. If you remember in verse 9, Paul charged Titus to appoint elders who will specifically refute those who contradict. And those who contradict, as it says there at the beginning of verse 10, are many. No wonder Titus' task was to appoint elders in every city. Why? Because there are many. A great number of false teachers no way he could fight them all by himself. You know, isn't just one mole that pops up and then you, you whack it. It's multiple moles that come up, as it were. You know, again, it would be so much easier if the, if the text said, hey, every once in a while you'll have a, have a false teacher. Every once in a while. 
It'll be, it'll be one at a time. Oh, not the case. It says there, for there are many, many false teachers. And this, and these great many in number, it goes on to describe them as rebellious. In other words, these men are characterized by disobedience, undisciplined, disorderly. They have no restraint. They're insubordinate, unruly. You know, these men, being rebellious, refuse to submit to authority. And if you remember our context, the church yet is not fully set up, which is why Titus was tasked to appoint elders. So, in the context, it's not necessarily that these false teachers refuse to submit to the church leaders, at least not yet. It was specific to God's Word, to the Gospel, to Christ. You know, the positive form of this word for rebellion is a military term. That denotes order. It's like when a commanding officer forms up his troops and commands them to stand at attention. They line up. Quick. This rebellious individual is one that refuses to fall in line. Rebellious men, let's keep uh, progressing in verse 10, who are also empty talkers. Empty talkers. What they say is fruitless. It's vain. It's a bunch of hot air. Disobedient babblers, some translations say. Their talk is useless. You know, the root word for empty talkers, it actually is descriptive of words offered to heathen worship. Idol worship. It's talk that doesn't lead into any holiness. It's, it's talk that doesn't lead into any, any goodness. It doesn't lead into any godliness. It actually leads to further ungodliness. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Just listen. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. You know what gangrene is? It's a dangerous, here's a definition of it, the dangerous and potentially fatal condition that happens when the blood flow to a large area of tissue is cut off and causes the tissue to break down and die. Empty chatter cuts off sound doctrine. It robs its hearers of truth and therefore it paralyzes the church. It cripples the church. It leads it into error. Empty chatter are like springs without water, 2 Peter 2. What a visual. You're in a dry desert. It's hot. And you see these springs, but there's no water coming out of it. Empty talkers are those whose words sound so good. They're so eloquent. They use Bibleese. It sounds so pious. It sounds so holy. It sounds so captivating. It sounds so encouraging. Taking Scripture completely out of context. To be able to fit whatever their own fleshly desires are, they use half-truths, which, of course, we know to be lies. In, other, in, in the words of Shakespeare, quote, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. You know, much, it, it's almost uh, what, what passes for music today. What passes for music today. I, I, was, I was laughing with, with, my, with my kids. This song came on the radio, which... So happened to just be awarded the song of the year. And I'm thinking, we can't even understand what they're saying. The, 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 the song, the, the artist is literally whispering through the entire song. Can't understand what they're saying. It's, it's empty, and unfortunately, it's what passes for most sermons today. A lot of pomp and circumstance signifying nothing. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, I think, summarizes this well. There Paul says these men have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Fruitless discussion. You know, if this isn't already bad enough, Paul goes on in verse 10 of his description and informs us that they are deceivers. Literally a mind deceiver. Someone who leads someone's mind Astray. Instead of leading them to the truth, they lead them away from it. So 
deceitful is this individual that they actually cause someone to believe something that is not true to be true? Of course, we know Satan to embody this. If you recall in the garden, he deceived Eve into believing a lie, led her to question the goodness of God, led her to believe that disobedience is actually what God would want from her. And there's no way that that God would withhold this good eating from the tree that he specifically said not to. No way that God would withhold that from me. You see how evil this is? Oh, we need to be on guard. Because what is unfortunate are these men, these false teachers, I should say men and women, usually don't have a difficult time drawing a crowd. Very large crowd. Usually don't have a difficult time gaining a following. There's usually a lot of activity and it looks so fun. It looks so lively. It draws you in. Why? Because we're curious people and we want to feel like we're included, that we're a part of the crowd. We have this fear of missing out and we're attracted to what's cool and what's next, what's hip. We want to be entertained. You know, at this very moment, right now, this is going on. You know how we know? Because those services are live streamed and you can see what's going on. You can hear the deceit and seldom, if ever, are the scriptures exposited. Seldom, if ever, is sin spoken of. Seldom, if ever, is truth proclaimed. What is proclaimed is what is popular. And we shouldn't be surprised by this consumeristic attitude. Second Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4 says this, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. You know, driving the other day, I was listening to a Christian radio station. And in between songs, an interview excerpt played of a prominent artist who sings songs we all know, probably memorized the words to their songs. And the artist said this, quote, What I've decided is that I would rather be more concerned about being loved than being right. End quote. How deceitful. It sounds so right, but when you really listen, what is being said is this. I care about what people think rather than what God thinks. And verse 10 ends by describing for us that these men are especially of the circumcision. Especially of the circumcision. The opposition that Paul is speaking of are Jews that are within the church. Extra biblical writings say that uh, there is a large Jewish population on the island of Crete. And we'll get to it more specific as to what they were teaching at a later point. But for now, these men just for a high level of understanding, we're promoting, among other things, legalism, works-based righteousness, forms of Gnosticism, and much, much more. Influencing people within the church, right? To turn to, turn to ceremonialism rather than to Christ alone. These Judaizers were more concerned about making sure the outside of the cup was clean rather than the inside. Another description, verse 11, they are motivated by sordid gain. The motivation of their actions is financial profit. They want to get rich. The King James Version translates this, filthy lucre. Now we know that money in and of itself is not evil. Money is amoral. It is neutral. The problem here, though, is the motivation. The motivation of a false teacher is such that they are willing to do anything, willing to do anything to get it. It is the root of all kinds of evil, and we've seen what people will do for money. They will lie for it. They will steal. They will steal it. They will cheat for it. They would even kill for it. So the false teacher has no shame, willing to do the dishonorable, the indecent, the the disgraceful They are prophets for profit. Oh, we see it so vividly today. 
Religious figures who are exposed to be frauds. And what we find is eerily similar to what Paul has already laid out here. Private jets, designer clothes, and multi-million dollar homes. So much prosperity. Christ, though, nowhere to be found. Sound doctrine that leads to sound living, nowhere to be found. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 6, says this. If anyone advocates, advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and dispute about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. These false teachers attach themselves to religious things because they believe godliness is a means of worldly gain. I mean, take a look at how deceived thousands of people are. One of the most prominent false teachers out there. I mean, his last name is Dollar. Dollar! I mean, come on, really? I mean, if someone even wore a shirt... I am a false teacher. Nah, I'm messing around. You're just joking. See how deceived people have gotten? Such a stark contrast to the qualified elder. Where at the end of verse 7 in Titus 1, he is not fond of sordid gain. Why? Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why is the qualified elder not fond of sordid gain? Because as Paul said in Philippians 3, 7, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. These things, money, the world, it's in the loss column. Christ is in the gain column. You know, though not stated directly, what is implied here is that every bit of the elder's qualifications are the complete opposite. When it comes to the false teacher, they are not above reproach. In many cases, unfaithful to their spouse. They are pugnacious, aggressive, self-willed, out of control. Certainly not one who holds fast to the faithful word. No, they hold fast to that money. That fame. That social following. They hold fast to clicks and follows. And whatever it takes to get more of it. Though these men may seem, at least in the world's eyes, to have it all. Oh, let us not be fooled. Dear church, just listen. Proverbs thirteen thirteen: The one who despises the word will be in debt to it. Oh, they're in debt. Don't let, don't let these outward forms, outward manifestations of piety fool you. Paul, lastly, under our first point of who these men are, gives us some of their characteristics in verse 12. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This quote is attributed to a man named Epimenides, who himself is a Cretan, describing his fellow Cretans in a not-so-positive way. You know, we're to understand this generalization not as an absolute, and more of a hyperbole not an absolute, because if we did understand it absolutely, then even the Christians within the church in Crete would be descriptive of these characteristics. Rather, though, we're to understand this as what is common. This is what is common amongst the people of Crete. And Paul, in verse 13, confirms it, saying, this testimony is true. This testimony is true. Paul, having ministered to these people, confirms, yeah, yeah, they're definitely like this. They perpetually speak false things. They chronically lie. They're prone to falsehood. They continually utter non-truths to cretinize. This was so indicative of who they were or are 
that in their honor, a verb was assigned to them. To cretinize the Greek word kretizo. And it's similar to the Corinthian church, if you remember that. They were so bad that in their honor were given a verb to describe them, to Corinthianize, which meant to attach yourself to a prostitute. They are evil beasts. Evil beasts, you know, it doesn't mean they turn into some animal. You know, for you old school gamers like that game Altered Beast, if you remember. It's not that. Rather, they live in such a way as to live only to satisfy their passion. Their own sensual appetites. These men are monsters. They behave like animals. They're, they're savages. You know, in the world's eyes, these are men who are living it up. They're, they're, living, they're having a great time. And lastly, they were gluttons. But not just regular gluttons. It says they're lazy gluttons. You know, two words there in the Greek which meant slow Belly, Cretans hated to work and loved to eat. You know anybody like that? <laughs> hated to work, loved to eat. They were self-indulgent. They were greedy. They were lustful. They were overfed. They gorged themselves. There was no limit to their consumption. To quote Steve Lawson, he said, they didn't buffet their body. They buffeted their body. Proverbs 13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. That's why there's no limit to their consumption. Because they're just eating, 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 gorging themselves, but it's amounting to nothing. That's why they just keep going, keep going. What a list. Paul wants us to know, dear church, these false teachers, there are many. There are many of them. They're rebellious, they're empty talkers, they're deceivers. They're of the circumcision. They're motivated by money. They're liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now that we know who they are, our second point, what do they teach? What do they teach? These men in verse 11, back in Titus 1, are teaching things that they should not be teaching. Our text gives us further insight as to what this could be in verse 14 of Titus 1. And it says they're Jewish myths as well as commandments of men who turn away from the truth. If you recall earlier in our passage, those who are causing trouble are of the circumcision, Jews. And they were teaching myths, made up stories that have no basis in fact. You know, in a similar way, Paul warned Timothy that the time would come. Timothy, the time will come. In the church, when professing Christians would not want to hear true doctrine, but rather turn away their ears from the truth and would rather turn aside to myths. First Timothy 1 gives us further understanding on this. And again, this is also going on in the church in Ephesus, whereby Paul was encouraging Timothy in a very similar way. First Timothy 1, starting in verse 3, As I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Lots of parallel, right? With Titus 1. Nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. What were some of these myths? Right? A century or so after the Babylonian captivity, many rabbis began adapting... Uh, Adapting some sort of Gnostic Greek numerology. Okay. Numerology. What that is, is the practice of assigning mystical meanings to numbers. Under one such scheme, and there are plenty, plenty, they believe that the secret in the letter numbers in Abram's name, which amounted to 318, meant that he had 318 servants. They would add names to genealogies because they had some sort of deeper understanding. They could read between the lines. They understood deeper meanings. And don't worry if you couldn't figure it out because I, false teacher, I can figure it out for you. Jewish myths 
along with commandments of men. In verse 14, human commandments as opposed to God's commandments, as opposed to the healthy gospel of Christ. A teaching that adds to the gospel, a gospel plus doctrine. Christ plus something else. Man-made standards that, that elevated its importance above that of even scripture, of the word, of the gospel. Those of the circumcision believe. They believe that God would be pleased by all these outward acts. So what will I do? Because I think God is pleased by all these things I'm doing. I'm going to do more of it. I'm just going to keep stacking them one on top of each other. Because I think this is what God would want for me. And I would find more favor with God if I do all these things. You know, Paul comments on these commandments. Just listen. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why? As if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Further, First Timothy 4, it talks about there are men who are deceived in their hypocrisy. They forbid marriage. They, they tell you to, to abstain from certain foods which God has created. So deceitful. This people honors God with their lips. However, their hearts are far from Him. Isaiah 29, and our Lord Jesus quotes this and immediately the verse right after he quotes this in Matthew 15:9 says but in vain they they worship me teaching as doctrines the precepts of men the context of this is the pharisees confronting Jesus right asking him why his disciples are are breaking bread without washing their hands and Christ answers them why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Ascetic teachings, legalistic teachings, religious ritualism that replace true worship. Don't eat this. Don't touch that. Don't get married. You can't dance. And many more man-made traditions. This was meant at the end of verse 14 back in Titus 1 to turn you away from the truth. And of course, what's implied here is that these men at one point were exposed to the truth. Which is why it says there, they are now turning away from it. Not only that, but they are also busy turning others away from it as well. So we know who these men are. We know what they teach. Third, this is what they do. This is what they do. Back to verse 11 of Titus 1, these false teachers are upsetting whole families. Upsetting whole families. The word upsetting there literally means to overturn. To flip over. You know where else this word was used? In John 2.15, where Jesus, in righteous anger, cleared out the temple. And at the end of verse 15, says there, he overturned their table overturn their tables. Such teaching, Jewish myths, commandments of men, it turns people upside down. It upsets them. It confuses them. It, it ruins them. It destroys them. It causes conflict from within. And not just in the immediate family, but certainly within our context, the local church. And what's implied here is when it, said, when it states whole families is that this false teaching was also going on in people's homes. People's homes. Such as the strategy, dear church, of a false teacher to try to isolate you. Try to isolate you. You know what happened when Eve was isolated? What about David? What about when David was isolated what about Peter? What happened when Peter was isolated? On and on and on. You see, what is normative in Scripture 
is that you are not to be isolated. You live out your faith within the community of the local church body because it is here with God's appointed elders that keep watch over your souls. When you are within the church with qualified elders, there is a level of protection present, if for nothing else, by proximity. Now, we have a bunch of goats and sheep here in Atomus. I don't know if you've seen them. They're part of the city's fire prevention program. A temporary fence was put up to surround the animals and keep them safe. Here's what happens, though, when you walk up to the fence and try to get close, try to get a a close look at the goats and sheep because they're so cute, you know. What happens when you walk up close to the fence, a sheepdog runs. Right to the fence line. And if the sheepdog could talk, what the sheepdog would probably say is, what do you want? Back up. Don't cross this line. And this sheepdog is busy running along the fence line as people are walking up. You know, you ever wonder why those dressed in ties short-sleeve shirts and ride around in bikes, why they never come here. Why they strategically would rather go to your house instead. Because you're isolated. You're isolated. Second Timothy 3, verse 6 says, For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down With sins. The word enter there means to creep. These evil men creep into households, try to take advantage of you, flip you upside down, disorient you, distract you, to lead you away from the truth. And you see why fellowship is important. You see why being around God's people is important. Why sound doctrine is important. Because this is what these men do. They prey on you like a wolf. And it thickens the church. So we know who they are. We know what they teach. We know what they do. And fourth, this is how they live. This is how they live. Verse 16, we are told that these individuals claim to be Christians. It says there they profess to know God. But this is how we know that they don't. By how they live. How they live and how they live denies their confession. The word deny there is in a present tense. Here's what that means. It speaks of their lifestyle. It speaks of a habitual way of living. It's true, yes, a Christian, a true Christian certainly sins. And yes, a true Christian can at times fall into deep, deep struggle. However, their life is not marked by habitual sinning and lifestyle of oh, disobedience, but rather, it's marked by brokenness over their sin, a mourning, a confessing, a contrite heart that asks God, please forgive me. Not so this false teacher. Evil deeds are habitual, consistent, they're ongoing. A true confession of knowing Christ as a person with now a regenerated heart, a, a heart so transformed that their faculties, their Their orientations, the way they think, the way they view things, have now a righteous direction. And we understand that the the righteous direction of these faculties are not perfect. However, a transformed life is evident, as Scripture tells us, by how one lives. You know, in Titus, and we'll get there as we proceed through this book, there are multiple references to those who are of the true circumcision. That they are marked by a zealousness for good deeds. Chapter 2, verse 14. The the true Christian's obedience manifests itself as being ready for every good deed. Chapter 3, 1. The true Christian, the healthy Christian, the sound Christian, is careful to engage in good deeds. Chapter 3, verse 8. Towards the end of the letter to Titus, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, Paul relates this engaging in good deeds as a sign of fruitfulness. 
for the Christian. Elsewhere in Scripture, we know in James that faith without works is dead. Such is the thrust of the true believer is that it is a life lived out and manifests itself in a certain way. Matthew 7, verses 15 and 16 says this, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Here's how you will know. Verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. What their deeds are, these false teachers, we aren't told directly. But I believe in our context, we can rightly presume that it's related to a form of of works righteousness, as we previously talked about, a, a gospel plus doctrine that places rituals and legalistic acts above that of even the gospel. It could also include deeds related to Gnostic teaching, which we know was rampant in the early church. A claim to know some sort of secret knowledge, so prideful was this secret knowledge that they would be sure to tell you about it, that they have it. The fact that you're not in the know, but I'm in the know, all the while living however they want, because flesh and the spirit has been compartmentalized. Do whatever you want in the flesh, because your spirit is pure. Oh, it is these men that deny him, and by doing so, because of their unbelief, Christ says, they will be denied. Their deeds are described, verse 16, as detestable. This is how they live. Their deeds are detestable. In other words, abominable, rotten, repulsive, despicable. You know, the Greek there meant to remit a foul odor. If you ever cut up an onion, use the part of it you wanted to use, and then put the rest of the onion uncovered back in the fridge, and then close the fridge. And a couple hours later, you open the fridge, and whew, the entire fridge smells like onion. The butter, the cheese, the onion permeated the entire fridge. Their deeds are detestable. They foul things up wherever they go. Deuteronomy 32, verse 16, says this. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. God hates this. This word is even used to describe the Antichrist. Oh, God hates this. Detestable. And disobedient, literally one who refuses to be persuaded, one who is stiff-necked, stubborn, and lastly, worthless of any good deed. Verse 16, worthless of any good deed, that's the word adokimos. What that means is they are disqualified. It means they, it, it refers to something that is rejected after examination, something that fails the test, something that fails to meet the requirements, something that is useless. You know, this word adokimos was commonly used for metals that were rejected by the refiners because they had a lot of impurities and the impure metals were discarded. And therefore, this word came to include the idea of worthlessness, uselessness. Romans one twenty eight gives this further understanding. It says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved, the word adokimos, a depraved mind, literally a disapproved, an unqualified mind. So these men, 2 Timothy 3.8, also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected in regard to to the faith. Further, it describes a cowardly soldier, a candidate for office who's been disqualified. It also described a counterfeit coin, a counterfeit coin that's been considered now useless, and therefore we, we just simply throw it away. You know, this word was even used for a cornerstone that didn't meet its standard. It wasn't up to spec. It was, it was stamped with an A for a docomos, and then the cornerstone was disregarded. 
the false teacher professes to know God, but by their detestable, disobedient, worthless for any good deed, they deny him. They were so blind. They were so depraved, reprobate, that the truth was being spoken to them. Christ himself being the cornerstone, the true cornerstone. And these men stamped as being useless, discarded. Oh, let's do our own things. Because Christ is useless. Our own desires, let's fulfill them. Oh, we know who they are. We know what they teach. We know what they do. We know how they live. And our final point for this morning. Now that we've informed, we've been informed of all of this, what are we to do? What are we to do? Are we to do nothing? <laughs> Sit idle? Are we simply to, to tolerate it? Maybe hold some sort of conference where we can discuss our differences. Maybe we can hold an open forum. Right? We, can, we can air out what we think. Have a debate. So what do we do? What are, what are we to do? Well, back in Titus 1, kind of reaching back into the end of last week, in verse 9, launches us off as to what it is we are to do. First, we are to refute them. Refute. Again, in this context, this is specifically a charge to the elders of the church. To stand up to them. This is a charge. You know, think of what the church embraces. Not fights. Literally embraces. Welcoming in. Rolling out the red carpet. Teachings of wokeness and pagan sexuality. Feminism. Totalitarianism. We see the church embrace deconstructionism. And what, are we to, are we to stay silent? Oh, but the, but the scriptures, they say, turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. Completely taken out of context. Because you know, when Christ encountered false teachers, you know, did he, did he, hey guys, hey guys, let's, let's sit under this tree and let's air our, our differences. Is that what, is that what Christ did? No, he said, you hypocrites! Whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You know, Paul was so, he was so pumped up about this when he was talking to the Galatians because they were, they were peddling a, a, a gospel plus, a new gospel, if you will. And Paul was so pumped up, you foolish Galatians. What are you doing? Just like a physician who attacks the disease. Church leaders attack false doctrine. You know, it's active. It's not passive. You know, in our elders meetings, we uh, talk and, and, uh, and discuss many things. Ministries, you know, planning, budget, schedules. And as we're progressing, you know, through our agenda, um, it goes about in a, in a modest tone. Conversational, casual conversation. At some point, though, during our meetings, we discuss the people of the church. We pray for the members of our church. And when one of the elders brings up a sheep within our fold that is either being exposed to false teaching or beginning to be influenced by false teaching, we are also told of maybe some sin that's permeating. You know, the air in the room changes. It changes. You can almost feel this mounting up begin. There's a mounting up. There's, a, there's a, an urgency of let's go. Who's going to call them? Who's going to visit them? Because there's a fight. And we're ready. We're ready to refute. We're ready to look whatever or whoever is not of Christ, defaming His name, wanting to hurt one of His sheep, and you think we aren't going to do anything. Oh, no. Oh, no. You're going to be sought after. John Calvin says this, quote, The pastor ought to have two voices. One for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. 
the scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. End quote. So, dear church, here's one way you can participate in this. Please continue to pray for your pastors. That your pastors, with God's help, continue to have both voices. What else are we to do? We are to silence them. In verse 11, literally means to muzzle them, to gag them, to take away their platform so whatever it is they're peddling could be removed. You know, because what's your, what is more, more most common today, socially, is that we are totally independent, completely privatized. So this could be difficult to muzzle them because the ease of access to books and to podcasts and and all these things in your car, that radio still in your car, you are all alone. Or dear church, what we need is discernment. Discernment can only be found when grounded in the truth of God's word. Discernment can only be found when a healthy church is feeding you God's truth. And it tastes so satisfying that when the world offers you something to eat or drink, even the slightest taste of it, you will have an allergic reaction. You would say, That's, that doesn't taste right. That's nasty. I don't want that. And again, in the context, it's so important. How are we to silence them? Are we to, are we to physically restrain them? Are we to put duct tape around their mouth? I mean, for some people, I, I would want to do that. But is that what we're to do? No, what implies here is Paul saying, Church, how you muzzle the false teachers is by teaching the truth. Teaching the truth. Where do we get that? Verse 9, exhort in sound doctrines. False teachers are silenced when the truth of the gospel, his word, is clearly and precisely and powerfully proclaimed that their heresy is exposed. This same word that is so powerful that it upholds all things, this same word that will not pass away, this same word that our Lord Jesus used to fight off the greatest of false teachers when Satan was tempting him. This same word, this truth that our Lord used to combat lies and deception when the, when the, when the Sadducees tried to trap him, they failed, and then it's the Pharisees' turn, and then they tried to catch him, and then they failed, and then who's up next? It's the scribes, and then they failed as well. And so the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, they all tried to attack Jesus with their lies and deception, and Jesus fought all of them off with the truth. And it says there, interesting, in Matthew twenty-two forty-six, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. No one wanted to ask him any more questions. And of course, what's implied here is not only what he said, but how he lived. This is our, this is our one-two punch for silencing false teaching and false teachers. We are to speak the truth of Christ and live the truth of Christ. And this exposes what is false. Our next chapter, Titus 2, verse 8, to be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. We are also told in verse 13 to reprove them severely. To bring to light, reprove. To cut as if with a knife or an axe, severely. It's indicative of, of one swift blow as you're cutting down a tree branch. Just one. Not gnawing at it. Just like one blow. Because correction has to be urgent. You know, the severity of such rebuke was to be remedial. It was to be corrective. Titus wasn't here being commanded to condemn them per se. Rather, he was seeking to correct their error so that what? They may be sound in the faith. As someone has observed, quote, the surgeon of the soul only cuts to achieve a cure. You know, there's a tumor in there and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to surgically cut, not going to stab. I'm going to surgically cut and pull that out. And it's going to hurt, but it's going to save your life. This incision may hurt, but this is to keep you alive. Second Timothy 2, 
Just listen, verse 24 and 25. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Oh, that God may be so kind to grant repentance and correction. And of course, let's remember the man who is saying this, Paul. You think he's aware of the Lord's patience and kindness towards him? How he was lavished with grace and how God's kindness, Romans 2, 4, led him to repentance. And so twisted is the world's understanding because somehow kindness and not being quarrelsome and being kind has been made synonymous with not saying anything. Oh, that's the most kindest thing and most loving thing a Christian can do is to tell the truth. As we conclude, my hope is that you're beginning to see beginning to feel the thrust of this letter. This is Christ's church. Christ's church is precious. It, it must be protected. You know, you may be here this morning and none of this matters to you. None of this makes sense to you. You don't connect to any of this because you don't connect to Christ's church because you are not connected to Christ. Dear friend, there is hope for you. In Christ, there is hope. The messages you get out there about self-fulfillment and prosperity and happiness and whatever else that is contrary to the pure gospel will lead you to condemnation and further ungodliness. And in Titus 1, back in verse 15, dear friend, there is hope for you here. And dear Christian, believer in Christ, may this be a reminder for you to stir within you a renewed affection for the hope that is in you, it says there in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Here is our hope, dear church. Here's our hope. To the pure, all things are pure. What does that even mean? Remember the context. False teachers have crept into the church preaching a gospel plus message. Christ is not enough. Therefore, I have to perform all these deeds in order that I, I myself, can make myself clean. Paul says you're wrong. Your heart is still defiled. It doesn't matter what you do on the outside. It doesn't matter how good and how pious and how righteous it may seem. Your heart is far from me. Matthew 15, verse 18, But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Oh, dear friend, the truth of the gospel is this. Only in Christ, faith in Christ, can you be made clean. 1 John 1, 7, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and how wonderful this is. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. To quote Spurgeon, We bid you not to trust in forms and ceremonies, but look alone to Christ and Him crucified. Give your life to Christ. He will wash you. He will purify you to the pure, to the believer. All things are pure and this doesn't mean you're perfect. What this embodies is that you've been justified. This doesn't mean you keep sinning. Habitually, as Paul said, may it never be. This means you will desire purity. You will desire holiness. You, are, you will desire righteousness. You will desire truth. You will be sanctified by His Word and His Word is truth. He will cleanse you in the eyes of God through the blood of Christ. You are pure. And as the members of the church are pure, Christ's church will be sound and healthy and will be presented holy and blameless. And so, dear church, as we are grounded in sound doctrine, may we recognize false teachers, that we know who they are, 
We know what they teach. We know what they do. We know how they live so that for the glory of Christ and the health of his church, we will be faithful to refute them, to silence them, to rebuke them. And if it be his will, grant them repentance. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we need your help for such a task. But most of all, God, you've given us everything we need for life and godliness in your word. Oh, so as a church, may we be faithful to Christ. Faithful to Christ's word, not deviate from it, not add to it. The message is perfect. No need to spruce it up. No need to add sprinkles on top. It is perfect the way it is. And it saves lives. It corrects error. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. May we be men and women in this church who uphold your truth uh, so that we could clearly see error. For your glory. In Christ's name. Amen.